You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Prehistories. I'm Kim Bidolf. If you've come back to listen after listening to one of the other episodes, then thank you very much for returning. If you've never listened before, then welcome. In this podcast, I talk to guests, usually archaeologists of some description, about the evidence behind the stories people tell, particularly about prehistory, although sometimes they branch out into other periods as well. We've talked about novels, films, poems, and more recently, some of the myths and legends that were possibly the crystallised form of an oral tradition, stretching back, in some cases, to the prehistoric past. In the last episode, for example, I talked to Rena Maguire about On Raven's Wing by Morgan Llewellyn, which was a modern retelling of the Ulster cycle, particularly the life of Cahalan, including the Tyne Bokuli. I really feel that these stories have inserted themselves into many narratives of Iron Age Europe, even while the archaeologists who do so decry their reliability for telling us about the Irish Iron Age, or the British Iron Age, or the European Iron Age. But in fact, Rena was able to tell me about some of the actual evidence for things like cattle raids from the Irish Iron Age that do confirm some of the things in these old stories. Of course, some of it's all a load of rubbish, of course. Today, I'm talking to two archaeologists of the Neolithic of Western Europe, but we're looking at the later folktales attached to these Neolithic and other remains that later people saw around them, including stone circles, burial mounds and rock art. So let me introduce my guests. Returning after being on the podcast a couple of years ago now, I think, is Susan Greeny of English Heritage. We talked about Bernard Cornwell's Stonehenge at that point, didn't we, Sue? We did. It seems like a long time ago. I know. Maybe it's more than two years, actually. And Sue is in charge of the interpretation at Stonehenge itself, as well as other English Heritage properties. You're also studying for a PhD in the Neolithic monuments of Britain and Ireland. What is the exact topic? Sorry, Sue. My PhD at Cardiff is Neolithic monument complexes. So looking at clusters of monuments and how they develop through the Neolithic period. Ah, lovely. So, I mean, the Stonehenge is obviously one cluster and you've got, but are you, you're looking perhaps at the Boyne monuments as well, Bend to the Boyne? Yes, that's right. Yeah, So Stonehenge obviously is one of my case studies. The Bruna Boyne, which is the Boyne Valley monuments, is another one. Also looking at, particularly at monuments in the town of Dorchester in Dorset, where I've been doing quite a lot of new radiocarbon dating of those monuments to try and work out a much better chronology for them. Oh, great. The, yeah, Dorchester is really interesting because it's got that henge, hasn't it? Then it was later used by the Romans as well, wasn't it? That's right. Yeah, there's a henge, a really unusual henge called Mornbury Rings right in the middle of town, which you can still yeah. go and visit today. And it's a very small kind of henge, but it was completely remodelled and used as an amphitheatre in the Roman period. Yeah, they do make quite good amphitheatres, especially if they're small, like that one. I remember going there many, many years ago. And of course, visiting Maiden Castle nearby as well. Yeah, there's a whole load of monuments that sit underneath the town that are kind of really interesting. So Are there? Yeah. Cool. I didn't know that. I only knew about Monbury Rings. That's interesting. I find it so strange sometimes to think about the sites that we forget about because they are built on. So in my local area, where there's just been a Hillfort project in the Chilterns. And although Aylesbury is slightly outside the Chilterns, because it's the town there, the Hillfort there hasn't really been taken on as part of the any kind of project theorizing or anything and it has had a few excavations but it's just it's all, always forgotten about because it's underneath the town basically yeah i think particularly with prehistoric monuments we all know the kind of ones that survive the breeze and the stonehenges and the ring of Brodga, but there's so much more than that built of earth and timber that we've lost and those ones are the ones that actually tend to be sometimes more interesting <laughs> yeah absolutely i wanted to ask actually too is Stonehenge open now for the visiting public? Yep, yeah, we are back open. We reopened on the 4th of July. You have to pre-book if you would like to visit, but we are definitely open and socially distancing. And in fact, it's a really, really good time to come visit Stonehenge because it's not very busy and we don't have our kind of huge numbers of international tourists at the moment. So if you fancy a walk in the Stonehenge landscape and a nice quiet visit, now is a good time to come. 
Yeah, that is true, actually. I used to run some tours there for a little company. And yeah, you had to get there early to get in before the international tourists in their big buses. And is the museum open and the Neolithic houses? Yes, the exhibition is open. The Neolithic houses, unfortunately, at the moment aren't. They're really small. And to get in there and still keep two metres from each other is is tricky at the moment. So yeah, the exhibition space is open, our temporary exhibition space is open, but not the Neolithic houses on the inside at the moment. But you can walk around the outside of them. Exactly. Yeah. Lovely. Lovely. Uh, my second guest today is Joanna Valdez Tullet, who works with Scotland's Rock Art Project. I think we got to know each other. We came across each other whilst doing Archaeology 31 didn't we, I think, maybe last year or the year before? I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm sure that's where I first came across you. When It was that in January, sharing a picture a day on archaeology, a different theme. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yes, I did that. Yeah. Sorry. It's a long time ago. Don't worry. No, no, it's just that I didn't quite relate immediately to uh, what Archaeology 31 was straight away. But yes, definitely, I did share a lot of pictures. I did your challenge, indeed. Yeah, there were some lovely pictures, lots and lots of lovely rock art and a few other things as well. Yeah, no, it's lovely. I really enjoy seeing, you know, what everybody has to share. It's uh, quite interesting. Yeah, it is. It was lovely to have lots of people from all over the world get involved. Yeah. So... And you're looking at the moment at Scotland's rock art. So what kind of rock art do you get? Is there anything specific you're looking at at the moment? The project is hosted by Historic Environment Scotland. Um, and it's also in partnership with the University of Edinburgh and Glasgow School of Arts. And basically what we are trying to do is to catalogue all of the prehistoric rock art that is known in Scotland and uh, and basically that's the focus of the project and then it's also a community-led project so we have involvement with local communities and we have trained a few of them who are doing a lot of the recording in the field and then we are now starting to move on to the research part so we have a good data set now of over a thousand panels that we've recorded we were supposed to have more by now but you know there's covid and stuff yeah absolutely. <laughs> so we've, not, we've not been allowed to be uh, to, to go out but we have already moved to a more research based part of the project where we will you know try to understand what is the role of this type of rock art in prehistoric life in scotland or what it is now scotland yeah and of course you're quite well placed to do that you did your phd on rock art in the atlantic area and it was published last year by the british archaeological reports wasn't it was so, a a very good book uh, and very good overview of, of rock art, but not just in Scotland, in a much larger area. Yeah, so essentially the, the rock art that we have here in Scotland is very similar to other types of rock art that we find in northwest Siberia, for example, the same one that we have in you know very well-known areas in England, like Yorkshire, Northumbria, and um, Northumberland, and also in Ireland. Some authors also include France, but to me, it wasn't relevant because I couldn't find any examples of open air carvings in France. I think it might be that they don't exist anymore, or perhaps there is just no research on the topic because it's completely overshadowed by the monuments, perhaps, and the caves. So I didn't include it because it didn't really fit the criteria of my project. But essentially, it's the same type of rock art, and the project is all about understanding these connections and why we have this this rock art that is so similar everywhere. So essentially, we're talking about cup and rings and cup marks and spirals and, you know, lots of circular little things. Yeah, and that extends down to the Iberian Peninsula as well, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Just in the northwest. Ah, okay. For now, anyway. So far, that's what we know. There are a few examples starting to pop up here and there, but it's not very consistent. So we have it, you know, well delimited in the northwest. There are other types of rock art in Iberia that are more or less contemporary of this one as of Atlantic art as well. But as you know, Atlantic art as how we defined it is very well defined in uh, in Northwest Siberia mostly. That's where it's located. Lovely. I love that area. Been to Cantabria a few a few times. Must go to Asturias and and also obviously try to get to North Portugal as well to see some of this stuff. <laughs> Be lovely. That project and your job sound amazing, Joanna. <laughs> My undergraduate dissertation was on open air rock art in Southwest oh. Ireland, and I was quite 
into my rock art studies a few years ago. So it sounds like an ideal job. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, no, it's it's been interesting. I mean, I was going to say, I think I was lucky because <laughs> this project kind of came up just as I was about to finish. And it feels like it's kind of a continuation of what I was doing. Obviously, now it's a little bit more geographically constrained, but with a lot more data. So... Mm, yeah, and it's interesting how new sites do crop up when, you know, they've been around or for ages or perhaps recorded many years ago and then lost under turf or something and they turn up again. It's amazing. I believe there are congratulations to you as well, Sue, for a recent study on the provenance of the sarsen stones at Stonehenge. Yeah, that's right. I was a very small part in a much larger project, which was looking at the geology of the sarsen stones at Stonehenge, which are the really big stones for anyone who isn't familiar with the site. There are two sets of stones at Stonehenge. The blue stones, which we've known for a very long time, came from southwest Wales. But the large sarsens, we haven't really ever had conclusive proof of where exactly they came from. No. And now some new work has shown that they come most probably from the Westwoods area, which is just near Marlborough, up on the Marlborough Downs, about 15 miles north of Stonehenge. Um, we've managed to show fairly conclusively, although there's still some more work to be done, that the geology of the Sarsons really closely matches the ones that still exist up there at Westwoods. So it's great to be able to finally say we know where the stones come from. Yeah, it is amazing. It's always been, as you say, thought to be in that general area, but to have more of a pinpointed location is is amazing stuff it was great there was a big splash in british archaeology magazine this month on it so i will put a yes. link to that is there a, a published article out in a journal yes. yes there's an article out in science advances and it's open access so the link is at the oh, end of that british archaeology article if anyone wants to follow it up oh i must have missed that when i read it i will put the links to that then and also to your book joanna on the show notes so, I mean, we've come together to talk about folk stories related to prehistoric monuments. And none of us is a folklorist specialist, but finds them all very fascinating. So I often see you post on Folklore Thursday a lot and always really fascinating. And it, I'm amazed how many stories there are. Yeah, that was actually, so I got interested in this particularly when I was researching Stanton Drew, which is a stone circle or a couple of stone circles actually sitting together just south of Bristol. And I was working on a small interpretation project there with some new visitor information panels. And there's some brilliant folklore associated with that site, which we might talk about a bit more later. But one of the illustrations that I was looking for for those panels, it was a cigarette card. And there was a series of cigarette cards published by Churchman's Cigarettes in the 1950s, which illustrated 50 different stories of British folklore. And one of those cards illustrated the folklore of Stanton Drew, which is the, the dance. It's the, the idea that the stones are petrified dancers. And I was looking for this image and looking for image licensing to buy the image. And the image was going to cost me about 50 quid to to buy from a picture library. And then I realized that if I looked on eBay, I could buy the entire set of these cigarette cards illustrating 50 different stories and the one at Stanton Drew for about £13. So I bought it and then have been, I'm nearly at the end now, actually. I've been sort of on a th Folklore Thursday when the theme has matched one of the cigarette cards. I've been tweeting out the stories from it. I think they're great. And they're written in a really lovely, concise 1950s way which is quite appealing <laughs> yes they've got nice illustrations as well so they are mm. very attractive yeah they are and it sort of tapped into so Stanton Drew is one of those sites where there's a lot of folklore attached to it and Leslie Grinsell who is kind of an archaeologist who worked a lot in the 1970s wrote an entire pamphlet all about the different folklore stories of Stanton Drew and so yeah I, I find those stories really, really interesting. They're kind of often sidelined a lot as kind of not proper archaeology or not kind of something we would talk about in, you know, technical reports and, and academic yeah. articles and things. But actually, they're just as much part of the history of the sites. And I'm quite passionate about the idea that we kind of share these stories and talk about them a bit more. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Yeah. I agree, because uh, otherwise they're going to die out. Joanna, you recently have found a few stories. You were told that there's no folklore around Scottish rock outside, but you've, you've found some interesting stories in your research. 
Yeah, that's that's right. So my interest in, in folk stories began because before starting my PhD, even I did a lot of commercial archaeology and I did a lot of surveys back in Portugal and, and Spain. And we have this, we still have this population, this really old population that is now dying out, unfortunately, in their 80s and 90s that are still very connected to the land. You know, they're people who were born in one place and live their whole life in that same place. And so you know, they know the landscape and they interact with it in a way that I don't think we will ever be able to understand because they know all the stories and they know all the little pieces. So, for example, I remember asking, so have you heard of this? And they will immediately tell you from their, they have this mental map and they will tell you where it is, but there's always something more. It's just not it's just not a map, you know, it's like everything comes alive where they tell you, where they talk to you about it. And often we, they, they'd be telling us lots of these folk tales and legends about particularly prehistoric sites, because I guess that people don't necessarily understand what they were for and how old they are. And I think that there is this need to incorporate them into their own understanding of their landscape somehow. And so you know, they, they, there are these associated folk tales to them that they would kind of tell us about it. And I find that really fascinating. And there's loads of them about rock art as well. So when I moved here and when I started working, I was also interested in recording that part of the rock art because, as you know, as Sue was saying, this is what really keeps the, the monuments and the landscapes alive, isn't it? Because otherwise we're just kind of archaeometrically recording them. And yeah, I was told that there wasn't much in Scotland. And suddenly I thought about doing a, a Facebook post. Scotland's Rock Art Project has a Facebook page and uh, we have this Monday Facts. And I thought I'd look into folk tales and suddenly I found quite a few things, which was quite surprising. And yeah, it was it was really interesting, actually. So there are some things <laughs> about folk tales. Uh-huh. Oh, well, we will hear about them after this break. And we're back. So, Joanna, you were saying that you did find some tales related to Scottish rock art. Yeah, so there is one that is fairly known, certainly in the area around Edinburgh, which is about a a stone, a rock in Tormain Hill, which was destroyed in the well, mid-20th century at some point. And it's related to witchcraft. So there was this idea that, you know, there's some magic attached to it and also some fertility rites that people would do. So they say that uh, women would sit on it and they would kind of just slide down to it, presumably to, to become pregnant at some point. So that was the only one that I knew about. But then there were others that uh, when I started looking into this, that started popping up. And obviously there's there's the relationship with the fairies. Is that some of them have you know connections to the fairies where they live or where they've been seen or where they've been heard for the last time, which is interesting because it's always in the last decades of the 19th century. Yeah. Yeah. And there's lots of them that involve magic and witchcraft and witches, also evil. A lot of them mention, you know, the devil and uh, and other evil spirits. There's an interesting tale about the Highlands where they say that people would put milk in the cup marks to appease the ghosts and make sure that they would have, you know, nice crops and the animals would be providing them lots of food and, and milk and things like that. Mm. There's also some others related to healing. So there is one that is known as the measles rock where people would take their children to cure them for measles. Oh, wow. Yeah. And obviously there are others that are related to, you know, saints, which I think have to do with Christianization processes. And there's some other odd ones. So for example, Donad in Argyle, there is this shape on a rock, which is supposed to be the shape of a foot where supposedly the new Scottish kings would be crowned. So so there is quite a variety of them. I haven't really had time to kind of delve into it in a lot of detail, but, you know, there seems to be quite a lot to to look into it. And there does seem to be quite a lot now, and some of them sound very familiar. You were talking about Stanton Drew, so what kind of other things did you find out about that? Well, interestingly, the themes that come out of these stories seem to be very, the reason they sound so familiar is because they do get attached to lots of different sites. So, you know, sites being named after giants or devils is just really common. You just get so many different sites that are, you know, the devil's arrows and the devil's seat and the devil's, you know, hunchback. And and, and often these names are applied not just to prehistoric sites that we know today are monuments, but also to natural features and, and natural stones. 
erratics and things like that. But yeah, at Stanton Drew, so Stanton Drew is one of those sites that kind of has a number of different stories attached to it. The, the most famous one is, is the fact that it's, it's the petrified dancers. So the idea is that there's a wedding. So three of the stones stand together probably some sort of cove so a little kind of arrangement of three stones and they're they're known as you know the bride the groom and and the and the priest basically they're standing as if they're at a wedding and and the stones are referred to as the wedding by John Aubrey who visits in 1644 so he he says that they're called the wedding and the idea is that the the wedding party so all the all the stones are the, are the guests at the wedding are they attend this big wedding it's a massively happy occasion that as the night draws on they are dancing in the field and there's a fiddler playing for them but when it midnight strikes, he says, I can't play anymore because it's the Sabbath. The Lord's day has begun. And the bride basically says, you know, I want to carry on dancing. Someone send me a musician. And a gaily dressed fiddler comes by and it's the devil in disguise, in effect, who then plays the fiddle faster and faster and faster uh, until the revelers are turned to stone. Oh, so the idea is that this is a petrified wedding party. <laughs> and that's actually quite a common idea. You get that with the Merry Maidens down in Cornwall. Yeah. There are lots of stories that stones can dance at night or that they, that they move at night. Yes. The nine stones down in Devon is often said to be sort of maidens that dance. And of course, there's others like the hurlers down in Cornwall, where they are supposed to have been turned to stone because they were hurling, playing a sporting match again on the Sabbath on a Sunday. So they're turned to stone by St. Clear, who's the local saint there. So it's it's a really common theme. And it's probably part of a kind of widespread Christian movement that placed massive emphasis on keeping the Sabbath holy and keeping it free from toil and, you know, not dancing, not playing sports, et cetera, et cetera, that mm. gets kind of attached to these prehistoric sites. So that's the main story at Stanton Drew. But there are also another story, which is that the stones are countless. So if you try and count the stones, you never get the same number twice. Oh, I've got that. Uh, yeah, that that crops up so often. <laughs> it does. It crops up on many sites. And it often, it usually does crop up at sites where it is actually quite tricky to count the stones. As someone who works on Stonehenge a lot, I always get asked, how many stones are there? And you have to say, well, it depends if you count every stone that's fallen down and broken into two as one or two stones. And it depends if you count the stones that are still under the ground or, you know, so it's no wonder that it, you know, yeah. that the idea comes up that you can't count the stones twice. And if you are successful, that you would basically drop down dead. <laughs> yes. So <laughs> this is attached to Stanton Drew, but it's also related with Stonehenge. Again, in the 16th century, people record that they're this legend attached to the stones at Stonehenge. There's a site down in Kent called Kitscoty House. Mm-hmm. which is another English heritage guardianship site where and next to it is Little Kitscoty House, which again is actually known as the Countless Stones. So that's a kind of really common theme. Yeah. And then there's also a few other small ones which get attached to Stanton Drew, but I think they may be ones that get attached to it from other places. So there's an idea that the stones go down to the river to drink that the stones move, particularly if there's a full moon or a hunter's moon. But actually, I'm not sure that's an original story to Stanton Drew. I think it may have been kind of projected onto it from, from it being, because it does crop up other prehistoric sites. That's the thing with folklore, isn't it? It's kind of, it gets confused, it gets added to, it gets kind of merged together, smushed together mm. and moved into different places. And it's like a tangled bank of webs, you know, kind of and not, not able to really untangle the, the stories that well. Yeah. By the way, is there a bird or a very vocal cat? somewhere. I'm sorry, it's my cat. Oh, no, that's <laughs> okay. She's cat. purring around me. She's been meowing around me. I'm trying to keep her quiet, but she doesn't stop. No, that's, it's, she's got a sweet little kind of like a, it does sound a little bit like a bird kind of yeah. sort of trilling, a little trill. It's beautiful. Yeah, she has a funny meow. <laughs> oh, what's her name? Yeah. Uh, she's Bagheera. Oh, Bagheera. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Oh, lovely. No, that's absolutely fine. Don't worry about that. Don't apologize for your pet. Pet's great. Yeah. <laughs> we don't mind that. So I was going to say, yes, that some of those things that you mentioned, Sue, there reminds me of a, a site that I sometimes go to to do some interpretation, some live interpretation and dressing up and stuff. And it's the Rollright Stones, which are on the Oxfordshire-Warwickshire border. 
and they have the same one about not being able to count them but that does make it make sense in the same way as it does at Stonehenge because some of the stones were taken away some were put back they've all been you know they've been moved some of them had fallen down so they were put back up and they're really quite eroded as well over the years because of the particular type of stone they're made out of a limestone so you've got no idea really if two stones used to be one and now it's yep. been eroded into two so it's got the same kind of story but it's also got a really interesting story i don't know if it's unique as such but it's kind of a slight kind of variation on the theme of witches and turning people to stone so at the roll right stones what you've got is a heap of stones that are leaning towards each other which is probably the earliest monument there and is probably middle neolithic chamber tomb that has lost its covering of earth so it's a dolmen basically you've got the stone circle and you've got a single monolith, which is now over the road. And there was a real battle. Oh, I think the battle is still going on, actually, with the council who want to widen the road. And seriously, there's not much to widen it between the stone circle on one side and the kingstone, which is the monolith on the other side. And the kingstone, the single one on its own, might be the latest, probably might even be Bronze Age, put there as a burial marker. But the story, of course, is much more interesting <laughs> in many ways. that there was a king who had come from battle, been defeated and was very upset. He had his men with him and his men set up a camp in a circle around a fire. But there were some knights who weren't very happy, who went off a little way away and were leaning together, whispering to each other. So the the stones that used to be in the chamber tomb and now denuded, those are known as the Whispering Knights. So they're plotting against the king and he wanders off because he's very disconsolate. And a witch comes up and says, I will grant you the kingdom if you can see Long Compton from the top of this hill by only taking seven steps. And he thinks, gosh, that's easy. I can do that. And as he's taking his seven steps up the hill, the hill grows grows higher and higher above him so that he can't see it. And she turns him and his men to stone. And she turns into an elder tree. I think it's a lovely story. And what's quite interesting is that up until the 1980s, it wasn't realised that where the kingstone sits is actually on top of another burial mound. So the hill was originally not that high, <laughs> but, you know. Yeah, it's a great story. It is a great story. It so cleverly evokes what the stones look like now, because the Whispering Knights do really look like a group of people kind of huddled whispering together, don't they? Yeah. And so it, you can kind of really imagine why people kind of gave that story to the site. It is quite an, an unusual one as far as I know, though of course Stonehenge is also referred to by Geoffrey of Monmouth as being a memorial to a fallen battle to a crew of kind of early medieval supposedly battle who get killed and defeated in a, in a big battle mm. against the Saxons. So that idea of having kind of a king and his army is kind of repeated there. But as far as I know, I, I don't know of any others that are so specific about that. It's, it's a really good story. It is very well developed, yeah. And about Stonehenge, then it's Merlin goes and gets Stonehenge from Ireland. Is that right? That's right, yes. According to Geoffrey of Monmouth. Yeah. So we we think that Geoffrey of Monmouth is doing a bit of taking things that he's heard from local people and stories and a bit of embellishing and making up because basically, you know, his his history is, is, is writing a nationalist history of of Britain. But yeah, he describes how Uther Pendragon, who is the king at the time, there's a big battle and the army gets defeated on Salisbury Plain, but he then wins the overall kind of war and comes back and decides to erect a memorial to all these 460 slain soldiers. And he asks Merlin for his help, basically, in bringing a stone circle from Ireland, which is known as the Coria Gigantum, so the giant's dance. So again, we see the idea that this is the giant's dance or the giant's ring, same as the dancing idea at Stanton Drew. And Merlin takes off a, f- a load of men and goes and fetches this stone circle from Ireland and uses magical kind of machines of some kind to bring them all the way back to Salisbury Plain, where he sets them up in a circle in the same way that they had been in Ireland. And it's then a memorial to the, the slain dead. So it's it's a really, obviously, Jeffrey kind of develops this as quite a, a detailed story. But it, he is probably drawing on 
on other older stories because another antiquarian also records the idea that the stones come from Ireland in a completely different kind of setting. Oh yes, it was John Wood. You you found something in one of his books recently. Yeah, so that was about how... I'm going to remember the story off the top of my head now, but that he was brought from Ireland and it was brought from a witch. And it looked like her behind or something? Yeah, <laughs> it was supposed to be from her the, her backside, but I'm not sure if that's her backside as in it was her mountain or her land, her back land. Oh, or right. it actually no, meant. Her... I don't know. It just was quite tickled me. It was quite funny. But yeah, again, Merlin, Merlin sort of went and tricked the witch in effect by saying, basically, I'll, I'll take the stones from you in, in the time it takes to count out as many coins as you can. So she thinks it's going to take him forever to move all these stones and she's going yeah. to get loads of money. But by the t- even before she's picked up the first coin, the stones have gone they've been moved by kind of magic so yeah there's an idea there that okay so that story is quite complicated he he also suggests that Merlin is is a a giant I mean in the depiction and the earliest depiction of that story in Wace's Roman de Brute Merlin is a big man he's a giant and the stones are called the giant's dance so again we've got an idea there which is very common that the giants built prehistoric monuments, which is a kind of logical conclusion to come to really in some mm. ways about how people might have moved such enormous stones. Well, of course, they were just giants, so it was easier for them. So you get that a lot with kind of giant stones and apronfuls of giants. And yeah. there's a famous passage tomb on Anglesey called Barclay de Gaius, which is the giant's apron full, translates uh. as. So kind of, you know, the mound of earth that's fallen from the giant's apron. But the Jeff Mirama story with Stonehenge is really interesting because there are some hints that there are some truths in it and I was gonna ask about that yeah yeah so the idea that the stones come from Ireland we now know that they come from southwest Wales or some of them do the blue stones do is there some folk memory of the fact that the stones were brought over really long distances kept since the Neolithic period it's kind of mad to think about it but it is quite uncanny how that they you know that they have described these stones as coming from the far west and to be honest at the time they're writing you know Ireland and southwest Pembrokeshire are are not dissimilar places in terms of you know where you're thinking so and and the idea is also told in that that they're healing stones that these blue stones have got healing properties and we have several records of people using the stones at Stonehenge to pour water over them and use that water for healing purposes. And again, healing is a a common motif of lo- quite a lot of these sites. So yeah, is that is that in the medieval period they were doing that at Stonehenge? Yeah, it, it's recorded for a few sites, but not recorded directly for Stonehenge itself, as in people actually still doing it. But for the blue stones, so there's quite a few wells and springs in. The Priscelli Hills, which I think locally are recorded as having healing properties. Yeah, holy wells and things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's fascinating. But Joanna, when you were you were talking a little bit about some of the prehistoric sites that you've come across in your researches in Spain and Portugal, and talking to people about them there, are they similar kind of folk tales that they have, or are there any differences? Well, the characters are slightly different, but the essence of the stories is very similar. So essentially, our our folklore uh, and the folk tales tend to be about the Arab peoples who came to Iberia in the 8th century. So in 711, that's the official date, we see a lot of movements of people from Northern Africa coming into Iberia. And then you have the people who are living in Iberia all moving up north. And they did establish themselves there. And obviously, you know, there was lots of back and forth in terms of, of uh, territory yeah. regaining. They never really settled completely in the north of the peninsula. But still, even in that area, you have lots of stories and, and legends Um about them. And they tend to be about princesses that are stuck in, well, when it comes to rock art anyway, but they are similar to, you know, other funerary monuments and things. Mm. Princesses, so Moorish, we call them the the Moors. So Moorish princesses that are stuck in in these great big outcrops and, uh, you know, it needs a, a specific person, usually a male, to come and break the curse somehow. Oh, wow. 
generally the story, when they do get to break the curse, often the princess can leave, but then they get stuck in, in the outcrop themselves. When it's not a princess and they're always incredibly beautiful, when it's not a princess, then there's treasure buried in. So there are lots of stories like that as well. We also have stories of fertility, interestingly, with, with similar things like people have to slide and, and things like that. So we don't have fairies. Yeah. Yeah, we have other types of characters, but I think, you know, the magic, the witches and, uh, you know, all these kind of mythical creatures, well, I'm going to say And I hate to say it, like the the otherness of, you know, these places, it's about putting people who are other than us in them. And whether that's fairies, the two I did, Daydanan in Ireland, or, or, you know, trolls and elves in, in Scandinavia or whatever it's yeah because you've got a lot of those in burial mounds and stuff haven't you and it's about having something that's different to us because it's not something that is part of people's culture directly yeah and i think that they have to explain it somehow we also have some that relate to the virgin mary for example and um and other stories that are you know, obviously about the Christianization process. For example, there are some yeah. caves at, at some point in the fourth century, fifth century, all the, the, the worship of natural features was forbidden. And then people started transforming their rituals into something that was more appeasing to the Christian uh, church. So they started saying that they started seeing these Virgin Marys in these caves that potentially already had some importance for, for the people, but now they needed the church to approve it. So they started kind of, let's say, putting different clothing on, you know, yeah. a, a Christian clothing. We also have, there is a really interesting tale about this one rock with lots of cup and rings that I find fascinating, where they say that the Virgin Mary was passing by and then she stopped to have her meal. And, you know, she had lots of little plates that she just, you know, put on the on the rock. And when she left, because she is this kind of magical creature, this magical person, obviously something like miraculous happened and all the, the, the shapes of the plates were stuck on the rock. Um, and uh, that's how wow. they kind of explained the cup and rings. That's a lovely one. Yeah, no, it, it's really, it's really interesting. So I think, I think that the essence is there. It's just that there, you know, they, they have, we don't have fairies in, in fairies in Iberia, for example. So they call them something else. Do you have any um, records in Iberia of the idea that to destroy or to, to damage the sites or stones is dangerous or, you know, those kind of warnings against destruction? Yes, yes, we do. We do. And in part, the, in some cases, that's the reason why the rocks were preserved until until today. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, because there's quite a lot of stories about kind of people who try and destroy sites and then come to bad ends in effect. Yeah. <laughs> it's the curses, isn't it? There's the curses. Yeah. So I think, I think the Royal Rights has one of those, Kim. Yes, I think it does. I can't remember whether it was the Royal Rights or another site I was reading about where they tried to take one of the stones down. And it killed, it took like 24 horses to take it down and then, and drag it down the hill where it killed people and, and it wouldn't stay where it was put. And then it took one horse to drag it back up the hill and put it, put it back in its place. Yeah. And, and when they'd taken it away, the crops failed and all kinds of bad things happened. So that's why they had to decide to put it back. So yeah, that idea that the stones, even if you try and drag them away, they'll find their way back or they'll you know, cause problems. Yes. We're going to take a quick break here and we'll be back. I know it's in the middle of very interesting discussion. We'll be back to it in a second. Welcome back. Uh, Sue, I think you particularly in the break there, you expressed an interest in the, the milk left in some of these cup and ring sites that Joanna was talking about. Yeah, that's really fascinating because I think, I don't know them very well, but I think there's quite a few Irish tales and folklore stories that relate to milk and cows and one of my favorite folklore stories is attached to Mitchell's Fold which is a stone circle a really small stone circle up in the Welsh borders in Shropshire and the story there is that a fairy gave a magic cow to the people that lived in the local area which had an endless supply of milk but one night an evil witch came along and milked the cow into a sieve and when the cow realized the trick she disappeared 
and the witch was turned to stone and a circle of stones was erected around her to ensure that she couldn't ever escape. And so I think it's quite interesting that there's kind of that milk comes into a few different stories. You were saying about milk being poured on the rock art. Is that right? Yeah, so I, th- I think most of these stories actually come from the Highland. And in, in the Highland, most of the rock art, it, it's not very elaborate. So you have lots of, there are plenty of, of, of carved rocks, but essentially they have cup marks. And the idea is that people would pour cow's milk in these hollows to appease the local spirits and to make sure that the herds and the crops were safe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that this is, well, it kind of illustrates the relationship with this supernatural but it also a really mundane concern for their subsistence and their survival. These were often called cat troughs. Okay. Ah, oh, interesting. I mean, it sounds very much like, you know, votive offerings for the gods. For the, it uh, does, doesn't know. it? Yeah. <laughs> and, Reminiscent and of Roman well, libations. Yeah, <laughs> they do. They do. I mean, is there a specific, I, I know it's quite difficult to do this with folklore, but is there a specific time where we can say that these stories arose? I mean, they, for instance, around near me again in the Chilterns, there is, and across quite a lot of the south of England, there are places called Grimm's Ditch or Grimm's Dyke, and Grimm seems to be a an alternative name for Woden, and so is related possibly to an Anglo-Saxon or early English, let's call them instead, early English kind of appropriation of these monuments and deciding what who, who had created them. And of course, then Grimm does become associated with the devil as well. But also, for instance, Wayland Smithy, I mean, the whole name of it, it is a Neolithic stone tomb again, but it's you're supposed to be able to leave your horse there. It's in, in Oxfordshire, by the way, near the White Horse at Uffington. It's an English heritage looked after site, isn't it? It so, is, yep, yep. I thought it was. And you leave your horse there overnight, you leave some silver on one of the stones, and your horse is shooed by Wayland, who was a great smith in early English mythology. So do, I mean, is there a particular time period? I mean, obviously, if we're looking wider than southern England, it might not be that it, they all, they're all early English myths, and some may be a lot older, or some may be younger. What's your sense? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. I, I think a lot of the kind of Christianization stories, so the ones where people have turned to stone for dancing on the Sabbath, and a lot of the ones that are named sort of after the devil, are kind of perhaps a bit later. So, so in that kind of 15th, 16th century, I think that's perhaps when they become... Really, as late as that? Yeah, because because that's the time when people are really into this idea that the Sabbath was sacred. And, <laughs> but I think some of them may be much, much older than that. But I think it's really difficult because, of course, they only get written down for the first time at about that point. Yeah. And so with all of these sort of stories and ideas, Geoffrey of Monmouth is pretty unusual because he's right back into the you know 12th century. Yeah. But tracing it back further than that is is tricky because you just haven't got the historical records to trace them back. But yeah, I'm, I'm sure a lot of them go back an awful long way, particularly things like the healing and the fertility sort of rituals and things. I mean, there's an amazing book by Ronald Hutton, if people don't know it, called Stations of the Sun, which is all about the ritual year in England. It's a brilliant book, yeah. Yeah, and he, he struggles to trace back any of the kind of annual festivities apart from midwinter and midsummer bonfires and possibly May Day back beyond really kind of that almost quite late kind of medieval period. So, yeah, it's one of those things where it, they could be very, very old indeed, but proving that is, is, a, bit, is, a, is a bit tricky. And obviously by the time that they, were, that they were written, they were probably quite different as well. So there is a, a while ago, a, a few years ago, there was a, a journal article called The Phylogeny of Little Red Riding Hood. And I think that what they were arguing is that a lot of the stories that we know today actually have an origin in the Bronze Age or something like that. Oh, yes. I saw, yeah, I saw that article about things like, what was the oldest one? It was Beauty and the Beast, I think it was, was maybe all the way back to the Bronze Age. Yeah. And it was down, but it was down to historical linguistics, wasn't it? That was the- yes. I think it was. Uh, yeah, it wasn't really archaeology, but uh, but I think I think that certainly in terms of rock art, the way that I think it worked was, you know, you have you have these signs on on the rocks, and they probably meant something when they were cre- when they were created. They had a specific meaning that 
disappeared with the people who are using those signs. And even, you know, it, it's like whenever you tell, we, we have a, a saying in Portuguese, it's like whenever you retell a story, you will always add another full stop, which basically means that you will add your own input to it. So as the knowledge of what, of the meaning passed on, things were different. And obviously the original meaning is probably lost at some point, but the, the symbols are still there. The signs are still there. So whoever comes next and, you know, these are, these are not things that disappear from people's knowledge forever. You know, most of the, most, most of the things that we find today are still in the memory of the local people who live there. So yeah. some of that knowledge must have passed on somehow, you know, even if just a reminiscence of the original purpose of those of why they created them in the first place in iberia we have another type of rock art that is more or less contemporary of of atlantic rock art it's mostly based in crosses that we tend to say they represent human figures and a lot of them were in many cases recarved during medieval and modern periods because people relate to that to that sign so they they kind of appropriated the symbol and they probably gave it a different meaning as well even if perhaps completely ignoring the previous or sometimes even having some kind of, you know, little bits of story that came attached to, to it. So I think that some things that probably pass on, you know, with gesture as well and other sorts of, I don't want to say rituals, yeah. but I'm going to say rituals. <laughs> <laughs> I think some of, some of the hints, particularly, for example, like the Stonehenge ones I was talking about, they, they are quite uncanny how correct things have turned out to be. So, you know, I think we should we should definitely take these things seriously and have a look at them and really explore all the different facets of them. I mean, in Ireland, there's, a, there's a, obviously a much, much vaster kind of wealth of early literature and you get amazing stories in, in Irish mythology about, you know, this, the Cid and the fairies and the kind of all the different places in, in the landscape and archaeological monuments that are inhabited by supernatural beings and, and the fairy forts and things. So it's a, re a really rich source of kind of inspiration and stories and we all know kind of how much people like Tolkien and, and Alan Garner and all those people kind of drew on all of that to, to write their stories, which, you know, that these things, even if there's absolutely no truth of them whatsoever, they're brilliant stories and they're really fun to find out about. So, yeah, I think we should be making more of them. <laughs> we should. But I think the the writers out there already make a lot of them. As you say, I've been re in, in lockdown because I've needed to go back to, you know, safe and easy reading. <laughs> I've been rereading a lot of Terry Pratchett books in the, set in the Discworld, and particularly the Tiffany Aching ones I absolutely love, and the Witches ones, um, because they are steeped in the landscape and in the special sites, the fairy rings of Standing Stones, the great burial mounds where the Nakmak Feagles live and stuff. And, and those stories are the ones that are actually that capture the imagination, sadly, I'm afraid to say, more than the Neolithic ones. Why is it that always these funny stories, these these ones that that um, not necessarily have any evidence, catch on? Like, I mean, if we come on to kind of more modern folk tales, particularly about Stonehenge with the neo-pagans, um, the, the Druids, the Wiccans, using the site in a, and seeing the site and perceiving it in a particular way, and then really modern up until the, you know, the alien brigade. <laughs> it's kind of, there's something about, and I say it a lot on this podcast, there's something about humans. We love to tell a good story and it doesn't matter if it's true or not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's the, the great thing about things like rock art that's kind of abstract and sites like Stonehenge where there's that sense of, of what on earth were they doing and why on earth was this built and what did it mean that is so far out of reach that they're perfect for making stories about because you can project onto it anything that you like and it's going to be just as good as the next story that gets told so there's something brilliant about having a canvas on which to project stories that isn't really going to answer back you know that that's that's quite that must be quite a source of inspiration for many of these stories and there are trends as well aren't there there are trends with in terms of the stories that are made up for these for these things so i was thinking maybe during victorian 
period. People were more inclined to think about druids and, you know, witches. Certainly the stories that I read, I was I was kind of going through some of them in, in uh, Ilkley Moor. And there is someone who writes a lot of a lot of stories that involve sightings of dancing figures and druids and it's all about visions and, and it seems to be a trend that, that during that period. Yeah. Yeah. And then in the eighties someone saw a UFO and, you know, the 80s were full of UFOs. You know, there were sightings of UFOs everywhere. And currently what people tend to talk more about is, you know, representations of the sky. It's like, is, is this an astral map or are these constellations, certainly in terms of the rock art. So I think that there are kind of trends, you know. Yeah. And, and I guess those stories are kind of influenced by the current contemporary culture you know whether it's aliens or yeah because people are still creating these maybe in the future we're going we will call them folk tales <laughs> but <laughs> they're definitely still creating stories linked to you know to to these monuments and i was again looking at at ilkley Moor because it was one of my study areas and it, it's interesting that a lot of the rocks they have really interesting names and then you know when i when i tried to find out the stories about them they really didn't have any stories people just decided to call them that because <laughs> they thought that the name was you know that's what they looked like or you know and sometimes it's i can't really think of any example now but sometimes it's uh, you know they're really intriguing names and but there's no associated story which is really disappointing but you know oh maybe there were used to be a story and it's got lost i remember going i, I live i lived around the area when i was growing up so ilkley moor is yes it's a great place we could go on i think for another hour but we should really bring this to a close right now i think that it is what i'd say is a parting remark really that these stories are fascinating and as Sue has hinted they may have grades of truth in them but to push too hard and to get to some original state of the tale I think is perhaps something that should not be attempted and to just enjoy them for what they are but definitely take note of them. So I want to thank you both so much for a really interesting discussion. Thank you Sue and thank you Joanna for coming and talking to me today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It was really interesting. Brilliant. Um, I will make sure that as I, I put those links to some of your work on the show notes, and if it's all right with you, links to your social media accounts as well. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful. So that will all be on the show notes. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thanks again to my two guests, Susan Greeney of English Heritage and Joanna valdez Tullet of Scotland's Rock Art. Were any of these stories ones that you hadn't heard before? Is there a prehistoric or maybe a natural site near you with an interesting folktale? Tell me about it. You can tweet me on at prehistpod or leave comments on the show page at uh, the archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash prehistories. If you've got any ideas for topics for the podcast, get in touch. Next month, we're going to be talking to experimental archaeologist and lithicist James Dilley about the film Iceman. The subject is the frozen Tyrolean mummy, popularly known as Ertzi. Have you already seen it? Oh, it's so good. What did you think? Let me know. If you can't wait that long, you've got 27 other episodes of Prehistories to tide you over. And the huge back catalogue of the Archaeology Podcast Network with literally hundreds of shows to listen to. Until next time then. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.